So the title this morning is The Identity Gap. So turn to page four, get your pen ready. This is where we're going to take notes. And what I want to do this morning is kind of paint a framework that the rest of the series can fit into so we understand where we're going in the next five to six weeks. So you're probably holding a pen. With your other hand, have a look at your fingerprint. Every one of your 10 fingers has got a fingerprint. And if you can, admire the amazing detail and the pattern and the creases that make you you. There's no one else like you of the 7 billion people on planet Earth. Your fingerprint is unique. Hence, that's the kind of the picture for the series, right? It's a unique identifier, your fingerprint. Now, when you were born, you had no sense of your identity. Am I right? You had no clue. Belinda's holding a little baby at the back there. That little baby has got no clue who they are, right? They don't even know what their fingerprint means. But as they grow up and as we grew up, we start to build a picture, we start to build a worldview of who we are and how we relate to the world and God and other people. We build up our identity as we grow. And that's formed by things like our parents and how they parented us, the school we went to, the friends that you had, the teachers that taught you, the things that happened in your world. All of those things built up the picture that how you see yourself. Do you agree? Yeah. And so let's say we could summarize everything that you believe about yourself into one circle. Can you put up the first slide there? What I believe about myself. Imagine how you see yourself. Everything in your identity, your view of who you are, you could put that into one circle. It's a little bit silly, but for the sake of a, a, a two-dimensional flat screen example, we're going to use that. This is everything you believe about yourself. This is your truth. And you can draw that circle, maybe the first four or five lines. Draw a nice big circle on the, slightly on the right. Okay? This is your truth. And just because it's your truth doesn't mean it is the truth. You might think that Pink Floyd is the best band ever. Right? I wouldn't disagree with you, but other people might. That's your truth. It doesn't mean it's the truth. You might think the sky is pink. Some people might agree with you. The rest of us would, might disagree with you. Okay? So just because it's in your circle doesn't mean it is the truth. You with me? Okay, cool. Now imagine we could summarize everything that God believes about you in another circle. Put the next one up, a yellow circle, right? This is what God would look at or what God would see about you if he looked at you. This is his truth or what God sees. God's truth. You can write God's truth next to that circle. All right? Go to the next slide. There should be three little numbers there. And you can write those three numbers in your, in your workbook. If you look closely, there are three segments. One, which is in the middle, two on the left, and three on the right. Now, segment one, this is, again, for you to take down. Segment one is where the two circles overlap. This is God's truth that I have come to believe about myself. Say it again. Segment one, where God's view and my view overlap. This is God's truth about me that I have come to believe about myself. This is profound. This is life-changing. This is amazing. All of us will have a different size segment one. 
okay? But none of us has a picture where both the circles overlap on each other and there's only a segment one in the picture, right? All of us have a segment one to different, differing degrees. Does that make sense? But this is what God believes about me, which I've also come to believe, and it's changed my life. Segment two, on the left in the yellow, this is God's truth about me that I don't yet truly believe. Okay, God's truth about me that I don't yet truly believe. Maybe I've heard of it. Maybe I can even talk about it. So I might know it in my mind, but it hasn't dropped from my head down into my heart. It hasn't become revelation. It hasn't changed how I live and think and breathe and act and move, right? God believes it to be true. I might know it, but I don't yet live in it. Does that make sense? Still to be accessed. Perhaps you've never heard of it before. That's also possible, right? But often we know some of these things that God thinks, but we're not yet living in them. They haven't changed us. Segment three, these are the things that I believe now about myself, but that God doesn't believe. Segment three, things that I think to be true, but that God says no. And that's a fancy way of saying lies. <laughs> so you write big capital letters, lies. Segment three are the lies that I believe about myself. I think they're true in my world. They look like they're normal. But if God takes a look, he would say, those are lies, Glendon, that you are believing about yourself. They are not true. Okay? And the identity gap, which is the title of this morning's message, the identity gap is the difference between what God believes about me and what I believe about myself. Circle two and circle three. And the aim in this whole series is simply to try and get those two circles closer together. So you went to church on the weekend. Was it good? Yeah, it was great. What did you learn? We need to get circles closer together. <laughs> there you go. That's a great church you go to, hey? Sure. Amazing. <laughs> so over the next six weeks, we're saying, Father in heaven, help us to know what is your truth. Circle two, help us to learn about it, to understand it, and Lord, let it transform us so that we are changed at a very deep heart level. And God, please help us to do that because we need your help. So imagine a little girl coming home to her dad. I've got a daughter, Briella. She's our middle child. She's eight and a half. Imagine she came home from school one day and she's in tears. She's crying. She's upset. She's distraught. She says, Daddy, I'm ugly. Everyone thinks I'm horrible. Even the teacher thinks I'm useless. And I don't even think I'm pretty at all. Imagine she was in tears when she came home from school one day. Now, as a parent, I can see quite clearly that segment three thinking. She believes that about herself, but as a parent, as her dad, I would say, because my view would be circle two of my daughter, right, as the parent's view, my darling, you are not ugly. You are my princess. I love you. You're the apple of my eye, etc., etc. She might hear that over and over again. I might tell her day in, day out, but to her in that moment... This is her absolute truth. I am ugly. I can't be loved. No one likes me. And as much as I say it, unless something changes in her heart, she's going to live with that wrong segment three belief going forward. 
Do you agree? She'll keep living with that. Perhaps you can think back to when you were a teenager. Maybe this happened to you like it happened a bit to me. 20, 30, 40 years ago, depending on how old you were, right? <laughs> can you remember being a teenager and trying to figure out life and trying to figure out who you were and maybe you were socially awkward or you felt uncomfortable around members of the opposite sex. You had all these hormones, your body was changing, etc. Many of us felt socially awkward. We didn't know how to talk to girls or to boys. Anyone have that experience like me? Sheesh, you didn't. Okay, one, thank you. One honest person at the back. Thank you, Mawuchi. Some people, faced with that awkwardness and that lack of self-confidence, they put on a mask. They put on a disguise of confidence. So maybe you, you remember some of your teenage friends who were like super confident, outgoing, always like positive. I'm not saying for all of them, but for some of them, that was a disguise to mask their insecurities. And it's bad segment three beliefs that look like this. Well, I don't think I'm lovable. And if someone really got to know the real me, they would run a thousand miles. I'm, you know, when I'm having a good day, when my best foot is forward, when they're seeing the best version of me, no problem. But if they get close and they know the, the real me, there's no ways they can love me because I'm unlovable. So what happens is some bad behavior in that as your friends start getting closer, you start pushing them away because you think, well, what if they learn the real me? And it's counterintuitive because we end up pushing people away in case they get to know the real me. It's a bad segment three belief. You see that? I'm sure some of us have experienced that. Another way of kind of stating, like the little girl or the teenager, stating these kinds of things is that my poor belief, sorry, my poor behavior springs from poor beliefs. Right? My poor behavior no one loves me, I'm unlovable, comes from poor beliefs. Because what happens is my behaviors, my actions, how I live out my life, the decisions I make, come from how I think. And how I think comes from what I believe. And so if my beliefs are segment three, they lies that I believe, but I think they're true, they feel true and real, then my behavior is not as it should be. So bad segment three thinking, bad belief system, leads to bad thinking and processing, which leads to poor behavior, like I've just described. And so the aim of trying to get these two circles closer is not just to feel better about ourselves, but our whole lives and how we act and live is affected by what we believe. So it's a really big deal. So no wonder Paul says in Romans 12, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I think in, in any, or in almost every area of my life or your life, where there's some kind of dysfunction, some kind of poor behavior, it's the result of a poor belief system. It's a result of segment three thinking to some kind of degree. We have this identity gap. My poor Belief, my poor thinking results in me living suboptimally, not as our Heavenly Father would want us to live. And so our key Bible passage, as I said, is Ephesians chapter 1. And so let's turn there. 
the op- just in front of the cover, we're going to read the first few verses together, Ephesians chapter 1 and from the NIV. Chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace which he's freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. And it goes on and it goes on. So it's an amazing chapter and there's lots of big concepts and big ideas. But what I want us to see and how we're going to take this going forward is that Paul is writing about circle two things All the stuff in the yellow circle, all that Paul's writing about are the things that God says are true about you and I. I don't know if you noticed that as we read through. You can read it again if you'd like. And it's some amazing truth. And so what we're going to look at over the next five Sundays are five of these big topics from Ephesians chapter 1. Some of the the yellow circle, the segment 2 stuff that God believes to be true, but that perhaps some of us are living in segment three thinking in that area, okay? Things like I am a son or a daughter, I'm a saint, I'm a servant, I'm a citizen, etc. And the devotions go through more than just those five. They go through the whole chapter and all the different ones. But this morning, I want to look at just picking briefly five of these things that we see in Ephesians chapter one, the first eight verses. So my first point this morning is this. I am one of God's holy people. I am one of God's holy people. So Paul starts off this letter, he says, to the saints, to God's holy people in Ephesus. So you might be forgiven for thinking that Paul is writing to those three or four super spiritual people in the church. You know, the guys who sit in the front row or the front two rows. The people with the angelic face, maybe they're so holy and super spiritual they float. Or they've got a halo around their head. You know, every church has got three or four of those, right? You saw them when you were coming in. They're a little bit taller than you. There's like a light. I'm joking. I'm joking. (laughs) But Paul... Paul is actually writing to the whole church. He's writing to all the saints, the whole church in Ephesus. And here's the amazing thing. Like a magic trick, this thing keeps giving. Is that if you put your faith in Jesus at 8 a.m. in the morning, at 8.01, one minute later, God calls you my holy people. Even though you might not feel like you're very holy at that point, even though your behavior might not yet line up with whatever you think holy is. The moment we put our faith in Jesus, he says, you are holy. He declares you righteous because of the righteousness of Christ is given to you. 
right? That's what the Bible says. And so many of us live in, live in a segment three thinking that says, I have to work hard and earn my holiness. I have to prove myself to God. I have to become holy by my hard works. And then God might say, hey, sure, you're looking pretty shiny this morning. That halo is starting to get a glow. No. The moment we put our faith in Jesus, holy people, doesn't matter how you feel, there's a positional righteousness that we have in God the moment we get saved. And there is, it's both and, we do work out our salvation, we do improve our sanctification, our behavior has to change, but it's from a place where God has declared us holy. Number two, I am blessed this sounds very loud. What's it like at the back, Ursh? Is it okay? Okay, sorry. Might just be the, the front. Number two, I am blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. This is such a cool scripture. In other words, I have access to all that Jesus is right here, right now. I am blessed. Not I will be blessed when I hit 75, I am blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Here's a very, very silly example, and you'll see why it's silly. Imagine a former citizen, a very wealthy man, a billionaire, Elon Musk, who was born here. One of the richest men in the world. Imagine he came to you, he chose you one day and said, Hi, Lloyd, whoever, Corin. <laughs> I'm feeling very kind today. He has a nice shiny bank card. Whenever you need anything, whenever you want it, just go to the shop, swipe the card. You can have it. Corin's like, come on. Sign me up. <laughs> but imagine, then you ask him, well, is there any limit on this credit card? And he says, well, actually, it's, it's linked to my personal fortune, my bank account. And so there's no ways you could spend enough money every day. I make more money than you can ever dream about spending in a day. There's no limit. And imagine you, you put that back in your wallet and he's like, wow, Elon Musk, what a kind guy. He's so generous. And you put your wallet back in your pocket and a few days later you remember, ah, oh, Elon Musk gave me that card. You take out your wallet, you take out your card like, wow, Elon Musk, what a kind guy. And you put it back and you, you keep going. But imagine if you never used it. You'd think of someone like that. You never used that opportunity crazy. <laughs> Now forget Elon Musk and mere rands, dollars and cents. The infinite God of heaven has given me all that I need for life and godliness. And so I'm able to draw down on God's love, his grace, his peace, his presence, his power, his direction, his word at any time. And he will never run out because he's infinite. And for all eternity, I have the infinite riches of heaven because I have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Number three, I am chosen. It comes from verse four, Ephesians 1 verse four. He chose us in him before the creation of the world. So my segment three thinking could go something like this. Well, God doesn't really care about me. God doesn't even really know me, right? 
He's too busy. There's seven billion other people in the world. Why would he even have time to worry about my life or my circumstance? Or There's no way he could possibly even hear my prayer. He's too busy. I'm too insignificant, right? That's often what our segment three thinking goes like. He's got far too much on his plate at the moment. But then I come to the Bible. I come to the yellow circle and Paul says, God shows us in him before the creation of the world. That's an amazing statement, if it's true. And we know that God is never lying. He is only true. I've got a friend. You don't know this friend. He's in another city, another province. And uh, we used to play touch rugby together. There was a social club when I was at university. Uh, There was a social touch rugby club on Tuesday and Thursday afternoons, and a whole bunch of us would go play Varsity students, guys who are working, who got off work early. We would just play touch rugby for two or three hours. And um, when I think of my ball skills, my abilities, I'm like, I'm average, right? I'm not amazing, but I can catch the ball if someone throws it at me. Now, this particular friend of mine was more on, back on this side, he would maybe battle to catch a ball if someone threw it into his hands, (laughs) even. But he loved rugby, and he still does, and he's passionate, and he's So enthusiastic, he would rock up and play, even though like he's not a great player, but he loved it. He wasn't very quick either. And he was a big guy, so he's he's easy to sidestep. Like, anyway, (laughs) he's a good friend of mine. But he would often tell stories, and maybe you had the same, and I had the same when I was at junior school, grade five, six, and seven, when you're playing in the playground during break. And you want to play like soccer or something, right? And you want to, you want, you're competitive, and so you want to have two teams. And so how do you pick two teams during break time? Well, you get the two best soccer players in the grade or whatever, and they stand as the two captains, and they pick. You're in my team. Okay, no, you're in my team. And, you know, you go down all the players who are assembled there who want to play, and you pick the best players so that by the end of the selection process, the last few guys remaining are... Chess players. <laughs> well, they're not soccer players, right? So my friend tells a story of one day, and he would often be like in the last three or four to be picked. But one day he tells a story, he was in the last two to be picked. And the, guy, the other guy next to him had a plaster cast on his leg. And the two captains says, well, it doesn't actually really matter who we pick because... <laughs> and this friend of mine, he said, I've always wondered what it would feel like to be picked first, (laughs) you know? (laughs) We come to God's word and it says, he chose us before the creation of the world. The God, God of heaven looks down through all humanity and says, I'm gonna choose you to be on my team. And we've never let, never let, never yet lost. Never let yost. Sounds like Yoda. We've never lost and we're never gonna lose. You're on the winning side. You don't have to prove yourself in some other situation. You're with me, so you're on the winning team. That's what God would say about us. He chose us before the creation of the world. Imagine if we really believed that how we would live. Wow. Number four. I am adopted. This is from verse five. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship. The Bible teaches, adoptions about families. The Bible teaches that there are two spiritual families on planet earth. One of them 
God is the Father. The other one, the devil is the Father. Remember Jesus said to some people at one point, he says, your father's the devil. So there's two spiritual families. There's God's family where he is the Father, and there's the family of the devil where the devil's the Father. There's no third option, right? Every person, whether you believe in God or the devil or not, outside of Christ, we are all in this spiritual family where the devil is the father. That's what the Bible teaches. And this father is a dysfunctional father. And the rules of this family are, you can do whatever you want, when you want, however you want it. And this dysfunctional father is out to wreck our lives and our eternity. Okay? Our spiritual birth certificate, if you like, is the family of the devil when we're born. That's what the Bible teaches And no matter how much I want to escape this dysfunctional family and father, I lack the power to do it. But in love, our perfect heavenly father knew that we would end up, all of us, in this dysfunctional family. And he says, I'm inviting you to join my family, to be part of my spiritual household. We often don't understand that, what that means. We live in segment three. And sometimes, for some people, it's not a, oh, woe is me. It's, it's more of an arrogance. Well, you know what? I picked God. I chose him. I gave my life to Jesus. So we show up uh, like on God's doorstep with our backpack and like, you know, I, I chose you, God. You're lucky to have me. And in fact, if you don't do what I, got, what I want, You know what's going to happen? I'm going to leave. I'm out of here. Actually, no. The Bible says he he adopted us. He's given us a new birth certificate. And so we change families the moment we put our faith in Jesus from a dysfunctional father who's out to wreck us to a loving father, a perfect father who's loving us into our identity. We live a life for ourselves in this dysfunctional family, but in the the, father, the heavenly father's family. We live for so many bigger things than just me, my, and I. He adopted me and he adopted you. And maybe this morning you've not yet got a relationship with this heavenly father. He is inviting you today to become a child, to become a son or a daughter. He wants to adopt you into his family. Number five, I am forgiven comes from verse 7. I am forgiven. Imagine you were on trial in a courtroom for every bad thing that you've done. Right? There's a long list, like a, a super long piece of paper. Everything is written down from every time you stole a cookie from the cookie jar all the way to every time you robbed a bank. Right? And everything in between. Every time you lied, you've thought something terrible, you've said something bad, you've been a hypocrite, you've deceived, you've been mean, whatever it is, every single terrible thing you've done, including the not so terrible things like stealing cookies from the cookie jar, imagine that was all written down, long list of things, and it's presented before the judge in the courtroom. But there's not just any judge there, God is sitting with his gavel in hand. And you realize you can't get away with one thing because The evidence is all stacked up against you. He knows it's all true. Why? Because he's God. He was there. He watched everything happen. 
that you've done wrong and that I've done wrong. Now imagine we try to pay back for all the bad things. No, we try to pay him back and try and get out of the judgment that's against us. Well, the problem is, is that we've sinned so many times against an infinite God, and so there's, it's not possible. We've, our sin is infinite against an infinite God. It's not possible to pay it all back, and God knows that. And so the problem we have is the guilt and the shame that we feel, but the punishment and the wrath of God hanging over us because we're guilty. And so God, the perfect judge who can't wink at sin, he says, you are guilty, every one of us, for everything on that list. But instead of taking that punishment and putting it on you and I, because we can't pay it back, he says, Jesus is going to go down on a mission. And he's going to take all the sin and the filth and the deceit and the lies and everything that Glendon's done wrong, and Jesus is going to take it on himself on the cross. And God is going to punish Jesus instead of Glendon. Insert your name there. And so then God looks at us and says, you're not guilty because Jesus took the bullet for you. I forgive you, even though you can't pay it back, even though you've done nothing for it, even though my perfect eternal son, he paid the price on the cross, even though he didn't owe a thing, yet he gladly took on the punishment for you and for me and for the sins of the whole world. And God says, you are forgiven. Not because of something you've done or some clever ritual of how many times you've prayed or how many times you came to church or how many times you read the Bible. It's because of what Jesus has done, taking away our sin. He was a substitute that God could say, ah, sin has been atoned for. I can now say, if you put your faith in me, you are forgiven. Isn't that amazing? Beautiful. The sacrifice of Christ changes me from guilty and filthy to forgiven and cleansed. It is astonishing. Now, sometimes I carry around with me those old thought patterns from the dysfunctional family that I, I used to be in. And instead of trying to prove myself, I stand as a son, accepted, forgiven, loved, etc., attempting to grow. We can go to the next slide. The circles come back, I think. There we go. Segment one, we all believe some of the truth about what God thinks about us, right? All of us have some segment one. That's the stuff that's changed our life and made us a better person because our belief and our thinking matches up with what God says, with God's word, right? But if you look at segment two, there's a whole other segment, which is probably way bigger than the screen, that God still believes about me and you that we have no cooking clue about yet. And the sad thing is we, we live in so little of that truth. Do you know how I know that? Let me try and work it out for us. Because when times get really difficult, when there's pain, when there's suffering, when God doesn't answer our prayers, when life becomes challenging or it just seems like it's too much, we have segment three thoughts and segment three behaviors. They go something like this. We say things like, 
God, where are you? In this moment of my life, God, where are you? God, after all I've done for you, where are you today? Why haven't you answered my prayer? You let this thing happen after all I've done. And we question, does God really love me? Is he really kind? Is he even awake on the throne? We say things like, well, God didn't come through for me in that situation. Are you kidding? The God of heaven who adopted us, who loved us, who's forgiven us, who's healed us, who's cleansed us, who's put us in his family. He's done all that for us. And we say, we accuse him of not coming through for us. That's segment three thinking, friends, right there. It might feel like your absolute truth in that moment. You feel like God lets, God's let you down. But that's because we're living in segment three. It feels like the truth. But actually, it's not what God would say. I think that most of our problems in life come from the fact that we're living in segment three more than we should. Would you agree? Sure. So the big question is, as we're kind of ending, how can I be transformed? How can I get these circles closer? How can I access more of segment two that my segment one grows and my segment three gets a whole lot smaller. How can I live in line with what God thinks and says and believes about me? It's not just rocking up on a Sunday to hear some excited guy in the front talk about it. But Paul gives us some very concrete examples and, and, and ways to do this. Go back to Ephesians chapter one, turn back a page and read from verse 17 in your workbooks. This is how Paul says we can go about getting more of segment two in our lives. Verse 17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the glorious riches of his inheritance in his holy people. Underline the word revelation from verse 17 and the word enlightenment, which follows in verse 18. They kind of, they mean a similar thing. Revelation simply means to pull back the cover or to pull back the lid so you can see inside something. It's to reveal, to make known. Enlightenment simply means to shine a light on something, right? And that's what we need in our hearts for God to flick the light switch and suddenly for stuff that we've kind of knew in our minds, we've maybe thought about or heard about before, for that to suddenly become real to us and to become revelation, to get inside our hearts. Because it's not just knowing something in our head that changes us. It's when the Holy Spirit shines His light, illuminates. Paul, Paul prays, I pray that you'd have a revelation. Why? That you may know Him more. And that your hearts would be enlightened. God would shine his light. It's a supernatural thing. No amount of me shouting at you can switch that light on. It's the Holy Spirit's job. Have you ever uh, walked around a room in, in the night when it's dark and you've kicked your foot, you've bumped your knee? This happens often to me because either a, a child has woken us up in the middle of the night and you stumble out of bed and try and make your way downstairs and the light's off, or... This happens often on a Tuesday night after life group. I'm switching off all the lights in the lounge where we've had people 
and the last light is in the far corner. So you switch it off, but then you walk back through the lounge in the darkness. And there's a coffee table and three other small tables and four couches. And like, I've got bruises down here often on a Wednesday morning. But if I switch my phone torch on, immediately I can see. I'm like, oh, that's a whole lot easier. Now I know where that is. It's a bit like that in a spiritual context. We need the Holy Spirit to make it real to us, to make it go from here down into our hearts that it changes us. Amen? So this is what I want to do as we're ending. And I'm going to ask us all to stand. We're going to pray a prayer from those two verses, verse 17 and verse 18. You can keep your books up with you. And that's simply what we're going to do because I can't make it happen for you. (laughs) It's the supernatural work of God to make these things real in our lives. Okay? So Father, I pray for all of us that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, our glorious Father, would give us all the spirit of wisdom and revelation that we would know Him better. I pray, Lord, that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened. Holy Spirit, come and enlighten our hearts that we would know the hope to which He's called us. All the things in segment two, Lord, all of these riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints and your incomparably great power for us who believed. Let's close our eyes for a moment, friends. Let's just, as Terry said in the beginning, let's lift our hearts to Him. Father, we, I think we recognize the concept that we believing lies about ourselves. It might even feel 100% true. It's what we've believed and thought was normal for our whole lives. And then sometimes we come to the Bible and we read what God's truth is and it doesn't match up with what we believe and so we dismiss God's word. And this morning, Father, we wanna undo those things and unpick our bad beliefs and our bad behaviors and our bad thinking And say, Father, as we read your word, as we read these devotionals over the coming days and weeks, would there be a simple childlike faith which says, I'm gonna believe everything God says about me. I'm gonna disregard maybe if my thinking doesn't match up. But I pray, Lord God, that we would have moments where God himself would get hold of us, almost like, putting sticks of dynamite in our heads and lighting them by the Holy Spirit and just, we have revelation of God's love or grace or our identity or whatever it might be. Father, I pray, change us over these next six weeks. I wanna pray now while our eyes are closed for anyone this morning who you might not be adopted into God's family just yet. You've, You've never put your faith in Christ Jesus, you've never let him rescue you and save you and make you into his child. I'd like to give a moment as I'm ending just to give that opportunity. If you this morning, you've never put your faith in him. Maybe you've heard about Jesus. Maybe you've even been to church before. You might even know the gospel, the good news that God rescues us from our sin. But you've never taken that step of faith and saying, Lord Jesus, I receive this free gift of rescue. I would love to pray for you this morning as we're ending. 
So while everyone else has got their eyes closed and they're doing business with God, if that's you this morning, you want to make your life right with God, you wouldn't mind just putting up your hand very quickly where you are. I'd love to know who I'm praying with. Anyone like that, you need to become a child of God this morning. I don't see any hands up. If you were maybe too nervous or too scared, I'd love to chat with you after the meeting. Father, give us more of your spirit and presence in your name. Amen. I want to end off, and you can turn there, turn over the page to, it says, my identity creed. Maybe I'll read this every week. I don't know. Maybe you could read it every day. It's a whole bunch of statements which are taken from the Bible, and they are true about you and I. Maybe as we meditate on them in the coming weeks, they will become real for us. I am a child of God. I am made in the image of God. I am blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. I was chosen by him before the world began. I am loved more than I will ever know. My father knows me. My father cares for me. He takes great delight in me. I have been redeemed. I have been set free. I have been forgiven. I am a saint. I am loved in the beloved. I am designed and destined for great purposes in him. I am sealed with the Holy Spirit. I am God's holy temple. I'm intended to live for his glory. Christ dwells in me. I am a new creation. I am a child of the light. I'm part of a new family. I am precious. I am called. I'm empowered. I am God's inheritance. I am a co-heir with Christ. I have the mind of Christ. I am dead to sin. I'm alive to Christ. I am seated with him in heavenly places. I am a child of God. Amen. Come on. Let's start to live in those things. It is so powerful. And you might still get picked last on the playground, like some of us and some of you were, right? But you're still a child of God, and no one can take that away. Be blessed. Have an amazing week.